0: If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me this morning once again uh, to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13, and uh, it is in the insert in your bulletin today. That's good news for you, good news. Uh, We actually have a shorter passage this morning than we've had in the last couple times that we have opened up the book of Judges, and Quite possibly, that might mean a shorter sermon. We'll see. I don't know. I can't guarantee that, but uh, that's something you can hope for, for sure. Um, if you're visiting with us, this is our 11th week in our study of this Old Testament book, uh, this heavy Old Testament book, the book of Judges. And more good news for you who have been here for those 11 weeks, uh, we are in the home stretch of the book of Judges. You see, today we begin the twelfth and final judge in this book. He's a long one. We'll spend several weeks unpacking his story. But after this judge is done, we really get to uh, the bottom of the barrel, as they say. Um, The bottom of the barrel of Israel's rebellion And it's a place that we won't and we don't want to linger long in. But before we go to this last judge, this twelfth and final judge in the book of Judges, uh, I want uh, to begin this morning by briefly summarizing chapter 12. Because if you're perceptive, you're wondering what happened to chapter 12. We ended with 11 last week, now we're in 13. Well, we're essentially skipping chapter 12. I'm not going to preach an entire sermon on it, but we're not going to skip it entirely uh, because it's God's word. And you can read the the chapter later, but I want to talk about it for just a few minutes, even before we look at chapter 13. So you can have your Bibles uh, open and kind of peruse it as I talk about it for just a minute. The short answer of chapter 12 is um, in asking the question, why is it here? The short answer to why chapter 12 is here is 42,000 of God's own people are killed. And they're killed by God's own people. That's chapter 12. And I think the reason it's here is because it's showing, again, the depths of darkness and dysfunction that God's people have descended to in this book? That's the short answer. The longer answer is this. This is Ephraim part two. Now, if you remember, Ephraim was part of our story. It was part of our study way back in Judges chapter eight. There, Ephraim came to Gideon, who was the judge at that time, and and Ephraim came and they were frustrated. They were upset with Gideon. Do you remember this? They were upset because Gideon hadn't called them to fight with him. In other words, they didn't get any credit. They didn't get any glory for Gideon's victory and for that particular battle. Well, they're offended again, <laughs> and so chapter twelve is Ephraim part two. This time, they come to Jephthah, and they say, "Jephthah, you didn't call us. You went out and fight. You went out and fought the, the Ammonites, and you didn't call us. What? What's the deal?" And one wonders what the perception of uh, the reputation of Ephraim at this point in human history, at this point in Israel's history. Because Jephthah, he doesn't waste any time. His, his fuse is pretty short, and he's pretty much done with them. He simply goes to war. And he goes to war in such a way with them in chapter 12 that he doesn't want any Ephraimite to survive. And so in chapter 12, we read of Jephthah and his army drawing these lines along the Jordan, and anyone who comes to seek to break through that line to escape the battle zone, they must say a word, a password. Shibayoff, Shibaleth, excuse me, Shibaleth. I can't even say it. Shibboleth. Now we've had a couple of our families recently, recently in the last couple of years, move to the capital of Idaho, and if you are not from Idaho, you might say it like this, Boise. But if you're from the capital of Idaho, you will not say it that way. You'll say it as Boise. Boise, not Boise course, you could identify people regionally in a number of different ways in our country. That's just one example. And in the same way, the way the people of Ephraim pronounced this word, or at least tried to pronounce this word, shibboleth, a word that we don't know the meaning of. It either means flowing stream or ear of grain. It really doesn't matter what the word means. It was the pronunciation of the word that mattered. If you pronounce the word wrong, it meant your death. Pretty harsh. Added to that is the fact that Ephraim and Manasseh, Jephthah and his Gileadites are basically a sub-clan of Manasseh. So Ephraim and Manasseh, they are the sons of Joseph. So in terms of tribal relations in Israel, if any tribes are going to get along, surely it would be Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, who would stick together and stay aligned. But Israel is a mess. It's coming apart at the seams. They're killing one another ruthlessly. Idolatry, child sacrifice, civil war, all plague them. And so chapter 12 just reminds us of this fact, and it tells us the details that Jephthah ruled, judged for six years, and then was followed by the minor judges of Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And the Bible doesn't want us apparently to focus on these guys because we know nothing about them other than that they were polygamists, that they were wealthy, that they used the marriages of their children for political purposes and for political alliances, Imperfect vessels used by the Lord to sustain his people. So that is chapter 12. You can read the chapter later today if you want. That's a mini sermon on chapter 12. And that brings us to chapter 13. That brings us to Samson. Samson, the Thor of the Bible, right? Isn't that how you picture Samson in your mind's eye? It's how I picture Samson. Samson in my mind's eye, he's kind of an Arab Chris Helmsworth, you know, just ripped and tough and handsome and, and gritty. And I mean, that's what when I when I was in Sunday school, that's the that's the picture I have in my mind's eye. But brothers and sisters, Samson is a mess. The writer of judges will devote quite a lot of space to his story. We're just gonna scratch the surface this morning. He may have been a mess. But he was a significant mess, one used by God in a significant way, as we see right from the start this morning. So, chapter 13, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Chapter 13, we're just going to start the story of Samson by reading the entirety of the chapter, chapter 13. Listen as I read. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a man, a certain man from Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines." Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And so the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, When your words are true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe." And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, "'Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you.' And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, "'If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord.' For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, "'What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you.' And the angel of the Lord said to him, "'Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful?' So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground, The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife, than Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahee Dan between Zora and Eshtiol. This is the word of the Lord. Deeded. A few weeks ago, Drew and I were out of town, and we were staying at a friend's house in San Diego. And we came in one evening, and our host was watching a Christmas movie on the TV. And unbeknownst to me, uh, the Hallmark Channel, every July, runs a Christmas in July programming schedule where they run all of their cheesy Christmas movies. This is just a pro tip for next July, Maybe some of you know this already. This morning's worship, this morning's reading, from earlier in the service, kind of feels like Christmas, doesn't it? Luke chapter 1, angel coming to Mary, Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a son is born, and then this. Christmas in August, right here at Ascension. That's a good thing. That's an intentional thing, because what it means, it means we're focusing on the amazing, astounding, and absolute grace of God that has come to us in Jesus. We see it here in the beginning of the 11th century B.C. and through the shadows of something still to come something much better to come. There's just one reality that I'd like us to focus on this morning as I walk us through this passage this morning, and it's simply this. The Lord brings life from barrenness. Oh, that is good news, brothers and sisters. The Lord, Yahweh, brings life from barrenness. We first got to get over this frustratingly familiar phrase in verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Once again, forgetting their creator, their redeemer, living for themselves and the idols of their land, God gave them over. And for 40 years, the people of Israel live under the thumb of the Philistines. The Philistines, these people from the sea, were a technologically advanced and yet brutally cruel people. Theirs was a a militarized society. It was all about oppression. It was all about conquering And of course, the Philistines, that's a familiar enemy to us, right? We who know the Bible, we know that the Philistines here in the book of Judges, they're going to be around for a long time. They're going to be around through Samuel. They're going to be around through King Saul. They're going to even be around through King David. Verse 5 says that Samson will merely begin The salvation that is to come. And so as we jump back into our study of this book, here here are God's people languishing under Philistine rule. But what's absent from the account that we have become accustomed to? There's no cry. There's no cry from God's people. They're comfortable in their idolatry. They're comfortable in their godlessness. They're comfortable in their misery. They are no longer physically in the wilderness. No, they are in the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, but their lives are barren. Their lives are lifeless. And yet, here, here he comes. Here Yahweh comes, the relentless one driven by his hesed, driven by his steadfast love. He comes to stir salvation. He comes to whisper hope. He comes to bring life from barrenness. And it comes in our story through a visitation a vow and a baby. And so let's just walk through it and let me retell it as we explain some of what's going on. Our story begins in Zorah, a small village on the southeastern border of the territory of Dan. We're about 15 miles from the hub of Jerusalem. There's nothing special about this place. There's nothing special about an ordinary and obscure man, Manoah, and his wife who we don't even know her name. And yet she's the main character, one of the main characters of the story. They're seemingly an ordinary couple with simple faith, a remnant, a remnant of Yahweh's people, believing his promises, however imperfectly, but they're struggling They're struggling with something that is common to a lot, maybe to those even in this room, infertility. They can't get pregnant. They can't have a child. Particularly in the ancient world, not being able to have a child was a a blight on a marriage. Children have always been a blessing. In the ancient world, they were particularly thought to be the gift of God and the promise of a future, a continuation of a family name. So here is this simple, ordinary couple in their grief, and a visitor comes to them. Mrs. Manoa thinks that it's a uh, prophet at first, a man of God, but we're told the truth. This is a messenger from God. This is an angel. This is The angel of the Lord. Could this be the pre-incarnate Jesus himself? And the angel of the Lord comes and speaks into her barrenness and says, Yahweh is bringing life. But not just to you and your husband, but to all of Israel. This boy is destined to deliver. He is set apart for service, and therefore, he is a Nazarite to the Lord. Now, we learn about the Nazarite vow. You can read about it later in Numbers chapter 6. Nazarite simply means one separated or one consecrated. And the vow that one could take as a Nazarite, anyone in Israel could do this, was voluntary, and it was, for the fo- it was for the purpose of focusing intently on the Lord for a particular season in your life. Now, Samson's vow is different. It's, it's a notch above because Samson's vow isn't voluntary, nor is it temporary. He is to be this for life. This is his purpose. And the vow included three things, abstinence from wine, really abstinence from anything that was derived from the fruit of the vine, no cutting of one's hair, and thirdly, no contact with the dead. We might ask, well, why why those things? What's significant about those things? Well, one scholar notes that as wine represents joy… So the absence of wine represents a seriousness about about life, a seriousness about one's mission. As hair represents life, so the uncontrolled hair denotes a relinquishing of one's life. And of course, as the dead represent sin and the effects of sin, so... Being set apart from that represents holiness. And so we have joy and life and holiness. Samson in this way is really a picture of what all Israel was intended to be. What Yahweh had wanted Israel to be. Devoted to him. Finding their joy in him alone. Following his ways exclusively. Set apart for the nations around them. But of course, Israel wasn't that. Again and again, they are not that, and we'll see in the weeks to come that Samson too will fail. He will break every one of these Nazarite vows that he is set apart for. He can't do it. Nevertheless, Samson is God's man. Born to a barren couple, when he's born, they even give him a a, a pagan name. Samson means little son, S-U-N, little son. But the Lord blesses him and the Spirit of God stirs in him. Yahweh brings life from barrenness. But remember, this is Christmas in August here at APC. We can't miss that. And I don't want us to miss that God is whispering something here, not just about what He's doing in the 11th century B.C., but the salvation that He is bringing once and for all nations. Think about it. Whenever God is doing something big in the Bible, He promises a child. Barren Sarah was promised Isaac to fulfill the Lord's promise to Abraham. God remembered Rachel in her barrenness and gave her Joseph who would save Israel once he was born. barren Hannah will be given Samuel. And then after this, centuries later, Elizabeth will be visited with the news of John the Baptist's birth. And then finally, to an obscure couple, an ordinary couple, in a small town outside of Jerusalem, not just to a barren woman, but to a virgin, an angel will come to Mary. Centuries before Jesus would ever walk the earth, do you hear the whisper of God's love for His people? And the story that He's writing this baby Jesus will not be a Nazarite per se, but he will be consecrated to God. He will be a man on mission like no other human has been on mission before. And just thinking about those Nazarite vows, those, those three components of what it meant. We have no indication that Jesus ever abstained from wine, but we do know that the first miracle that he performed was turning water into wine, as if to say, joy is found in me. I came to bring joy, both earthly and heavenly joy. We have no indication that Jesus didn't have his hair cut, but we know that his focus was on the will of God, on the will of the Father, and that he was obedient to the point of death. And while we don't know what kind of contact Jesus had with the dead, we do know that Jesus embraced the leper, that he called the dead back to life, and that he himself was raised, taking the sting of death away. You see, Jesus is the better Samson. Jesus will do all that Samson will be unable to do. He is the morning star. He is the son of righteousness that trumps the little son of the 11th century. Jesus is the new Israel. Walking in covenant faithfulness. The covenant faithfulness that they couldn't walk in. Brothers and sisters, why is Samson's birth narrative given so much air time? To remind you and to push you and to prod you to the birth of the true deliverer, Jesus. Jesus. This is the story that we're here celebrating, the story of redemption that God has been weaving for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. From barrenness, God brings life through Jesus. Not just literal barrenness, but whatever you're experiencing, whatever you've done, God has not forgotten you. He has come for you. He is with you. Oh, that's good news. And with that good news intact, with that foundation laid, I think we can turn back to this story for just another minute and ask the question, what can we learn about our response to such grace, to the Lord bringing life from barrenness? Well, how did Mrs. Manoah respond Let's start with her. No negotiations, no objections, just simple faith. She didn't have everything figured out. She just believed, same way Mary did, same way we are called to do. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Manoah because... I do believe that he believed as well. He had faith, but, but he wanted more, didn't he? He wanted more than just the announcement, more than just the instructions concerning the Nazarite vow. He wanted 12 tips for parenting. He wanted how to raise a special kid in the 11th century. The Lord hears him, and the Lord returns, and what does the angel of the Lord say? Well, the angel of the Lord simply repeats what he had already said to the woman, to Mrs. Manoah. And brothers and sisters, I think it's a reminder for us that God is not to be managed by us. Yahweh isn't our butler. He doesn't abide by our terms. He makes the terms. He reveals what He wants to reveal, and that is enough. Well, Manoah and his wife, they were terrified. They, when they understood what they were witnessing, what they were in the presence of, they knew that no man can see God and live, and they should have died, but they didn't. Instead, the goat died, the burnt offering, and the visitor ascended in power and in glory, consumed by the fire, a consuming fire himself, all a picture of what was still to come. You see, they didn't understand it all, but they understood enough, and so do we. They responded in worship. They responded in faith. They responded in obedience and in joy because Yahweh brings life from barrenness. Christmas in August, it really isn't a thing. At least when it comes to the baby born in Bethlehem. That baby born in Bethlehem is not just an annual tip of the cap. That baby born in Bethlehem is our lifeblood. Every month, every day, every minute, every second of our lives. Brothers and sisters, in our barren and hopeless estate, Yahweh has brought life. We have been given a Savior, a Savior who's not just going to begin our salvation, but a Savior who has completed our salvation. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage, for this birth narrative which cries out a story a story that we in this room have been gripped by, a story of grace and love, a story of humility and incarnation. Father, we thank you that into our barren souls you have breathed your life. And as we go from this place, we ask that we would be filled anew with the life of Jesus. With the gospel that is our life. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. Oh, Spirit, take this word and plant it deep in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.